Welcome, and I'm again talking with Greg Cochran, and today we thought we'd talk about uh, the Second World War. Greg, how are you doing? All right. Uh, although that, now we have to narrow that down a little bit, that being one of the broadest topics in the universe. Yes, so we'll be topics in the Second World War that Greg and I find interesting. Even that might be too broad. All right. So uh, what do you want to start talking about? Well, we could always talk about some of the things that people are controversial, either because the situation is genuinely complex and or confusing or because people like to make up stuff about it, uh, uh, which seems to have – I think that's increasing with time. When you get to the point where there are very few people left who uh, fought and remember World War II, uh, in many cases it – it's an excuse to let people's fantasy run free. Okay, then I have, I have an idea along those lines. Um, was sure. Hitler an awful military strategist? He he started out pretty good, and he got worse and worse and worse with time. And also, there's different levels of strategy. You know, some of them are, you know, you can talk about tactics, you can talk about operations, you can talk about grand strategy. On grand strategy, Hitler was about as bad as anybody's ever been. On uh, the well, wait, now, wait, now, what do you what do you mean by that? Well, for example, uh, you know, in uh, 19, nineteen uh, forty, Hitler did. You know, he was fairly he was quite successful. He fought the British and French and Poles. He conquered Poland, and he rather quickly conquered France and defeated the British pretty severely. Right. Okay. But uh, he did not figure out a way to finish off Great Britain. And Great Britain was fairly powerful, not as powerful as Germany, but not, you know, maybe 80% as powerful, particularly if you you need to count uh, uh, some of the colonies, like Canada, for instance. In yeah. particular. And, of course, Great Britain controlled the seas around Germany, and Germany desperately needed to import oil. Uh, not that year. Uh, that year it had plenty of oil imports because you know, they were getting them from the Soviet Union. Oh, right. It, desper- it didn't need to import them necessarily from the United States, and, but it needed to import oil. Uh, t- well, they did, but uh, uh, as I said, while they were at peace with the Russians, they were getting a very good deal, lots and lots of raw materials, Basically, it meant that uh, there was no blockade for Germany in 1940 or the first half of 41. They got pretty much everything they wanted and at uh, 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 low prices. Uh, the Russians had a theory, uh, which was uh, since they knew that Hitler was a tool of big business, what big business wanted was resources, and if you gave them to them, then they, then the people who really ran Germany would be happy. There's only one problem. That theory was false because the person who really ran Germany was Hitler. Yeah, and the Nazis had replaced the, the corporate owners of a lot of companies, and the, the Nazis were making the real decisions in a lot of companies. So, Well, more importantly, it didn't matter who ran the company if somebody could walk up and shoot you. Yeah. Uh, uh, so uh, the uh, – there and Hitler's ideas were Hitler's own ideas, which were very different and fairly crazy. And uh, he sort of dreamed of, you know, turning uh, uh, Russia into a plump place with a lot of German farmers, and not 
many, maybe zero Russians in it. Uh, so, uh, but at any rate, so for the first year, uh, uh, Hitler's military judgment had worked well. I mean, for example, early in 1940, uh, they had made plans for a somewhat conventional attack on the British and French, which quite likely would have worked, uh, by the way. Uh, but uh, they, those plans were lost because they were in a plane that got lost in the fog and, and landed or crashed behind Allied lines. So they had to come up with a new plan in the last month or so or the last two months. And, and he picked a plan developed by Manstein, who was probably Germany's smartest general. You know, this is the plan that they used a concentration of armor to cut through behind the uh, British and French forces, which had moved up into Belgium, and cut through them rapidly and isolated them and uh, uh, quickly defeated France. Uh, so, you know, his, his, uh, that decision was good. And that was a decision opposed by most of the German generals, right? Manstein was not the leader of the German military at the time. He was he was sort of a junior guy, uh, yes. Uh, but uh, although I don't know the details, I think some guys may have found it attractive. It had some it had some sense. But part of the problem was a lot of the things that they were doing, uh, you know, weapons had changed since World War One. There's things you don't know if they work until you try them. Uh, I mean, the Allied side had people with some brains, too, somewhere. Uh, you know, their idea of what to do with tanks was sort of sprinkle them evenly uh, through all the infantry divisions as sort of a, a you know, a, a sort of infantry helper. Mm -hmm. uh, the Germans concentrated most of them in a, in a certain number of about 10 or 12 armored divisions, which could move rapidly and, and where the tanks were concentrated. Uh, uh, the, uh, the total number of tanks on both sides was actually fairly similar, as was their quality This at this point in the war. The Germans used them differently. Uh, and uh, I think no one could be absolutely sure which method was better, because I don't think – well, I mean, I guess you could – already start to suspect the German method was effective because it had been effective in Poland. But, you know, that's that's a short time period to try to adjust to it. But there were a lot of things like that. There were new possibilities and people didn't know which ones would work or where they would work. Uh, that's kind of natural. So you know, at least they weren't that, sure. Does that imply that the French and British weren't idiotic in how they defended? Uh I think idiotic would be too strong a word, but uh, it is probably true that the Germ the Germans did a lot of things better, not just uh, some of those strategic. Uh, it, it's like they were they wanted to, uh, they, they 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 were looking forward to starting a war. The French and the British, particularly the French, dreaded it. Uh, the um, I mean uh, I mean maybe a, one of the bigger differences. In Germany, uh, uh, the officer corps was uh, something that attracted talented people w when possible. I mean, this had been sort of limited because treaty requirements had limited the size of the German army to 100,000 men mm -hmm. before the war. Or rather, I should say before Hitler took over, he dropped that and started expanding it. But they had had a policy of we will hire the very best. Everybody in the, uh, in the Reichswehr will be – We'll expect them to be able to uh, 
you know, if they're commanding a hundred men, we want them to be ready to command ten thousand. You know, everybody should be ready to be promoted to have the army expanded. Uh, so they were kind of an elite. Uh, whereas, you know, if you were somebody who's up and coming in England, somebody who was considered bright and so forth, you didn't join the army. And that had been true for a long, long time. I mean, if you, th if you were, uh, uh, somebody who had a lot of ambition, you would do, some, you're most likely to do something in business. Uh, that's sort of true in a somewhat different way for the United States as well. I mean, the United States Army, we didn't have a treaty limiting it, but it wasn't much bigger than the German Army. It had about 125,000 people. And it was not a place that, uh, the sharpest young, Amer young Americans wanted to join, not in the 20s and 30s. Uh, in fact, a lot of people thought of it as, well, if you can't get a real job, you know, I guess you had to settle for the army. Uh, and, uh, the officers weren't, I mean, there were some good ones, but, uh, they didn't have the same general high level as the Germans. But in terms of grand strategy, so we have, you know, part, again, partly because of the British Navy and the Royal Air Force, the, uh, Germans don't know how to finish the war and defeat England. So just in case our listeners aren't that familiar with all the, everything in World War II, so the British Navy was much, much stronger than the German Navy. It wasn't even close. And the British Air Force was, what, maybe equal strength, but that meant it was, since offense had a disadvantage when you're attacking over someone else's country, that when meant... You're the, fighting, when you're fighting over your own countryside, I mean, if you're shot down and land, I mean... A good fraction of the pilots are still around. Uh, German pilots who were shot down over England were, I mean, if they live, they were captured. Uh, they don't get, so you start to run out of pilots. Uh, and, and the other problem, you know, Germany was industrially stronger than England, but it's trying to do a number of different things at once. It has a large, much larger army. It's, you know, trying to re-equip it. It's trying to produce more stuff. They're also trying to build, you know, Navy ships. They're trying to build submarines. The problem with Germany is that, you know, they uh, they have a lot of resources, but they have more tasks than they have resources, uh, more than they have people. That's kind of true for the whole war. Mm -hmm. uh, but, yeah, the RA – and also uh, the British, uh, you know, pulled off a number of extremely clever things. Apparently there were clever people in England who you just had to actually use, which – and you could find them when, when you were in deep trouble. Uh, so uh, – there were a couple of guys who were tasked with inventing, we need a much better kind of radar, something, for example, ideally that's light enough you can carry it in an airplane and gives us, you know, better imagery and so forth. Uh, and they gave two guys this job, uh, which, you know, sort of a contrast with a modern research and development effort, and they did it. Uh, uh, they invented a superior kind of, uh, of uh, it was called the cavity magnetron. And it it gave a shorter wavelength, which allowed for shorter pictures. It produced enormously more, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 microwave radiation, so it could uh, see things farther away. It was light. It was small. It was efficient. And it was – I'm not sure the Germans ever ended up getting a cavity magnetron in the war. Uh, I mean, I think they eventually found out about it because eventually the British used it in bombers, and some of them were shot down. But I don't know if the Germans actually got any in production before the end of the war. 
Uh, we did. The British cooperated with us on it. Uh, but uh, And we made improvements. But uh, they pulled off some very clever things. Uh, uh, again, but part of it is, you know, all those people who weren't in the armed forces, a lot of them have been pulled in. Uh, so you have, you know, the British are excelling at code breaking, which, by the way, the Germans had some successes too, but the, the British successes were larger and long, more, longer lasting. And, you know, most of the people involved in that have been pulled in from somewhere in civilian life, a, bun a bunch of boffins, as the British would have called them, scientists and stuff. But, but anyhow, the point is, the Germans did not know how to finish the war with uh, England, and and somewhat to their surprise, England had not surrendered. They had expected them to. Well, there wasn't really anything the Germans could have done, though, to defeat England if England didn't want to reach some kind of agreement, right? It... That would probably be two other talks. It's, it would have been difficult. I don't know if it would have been impossible. Uh, one thing is the British... You know, armed forces were not had never been as good as the German. They had suffered enormously in the campaign in France, where they lost. They'd lost most of their equipment. They'd lost a lot of men. They had managed to evacuate some of them at Dunkirk. But the British, the British basically thought if the if the Germans ever managed to land any substantial amount of forces on England, they'd win. So I know Monstein um, did want to invade Britain. Um, right after Dunkirk, and you think he there? That's point I read. That's considered crazy that there was any chance of that working. But you think it might have worked? I don't know. I think they maybe would have had to come up with at least some way to improve their chances. The problem was, is you know, the English Channel at the narrow spot is only 18 miles across, but that's far enough that with that the British Navy has not been destroyed or neutralized, they'll sink all of you. And if you uh, know where the enemy is going to be trying to land, you of course reinforce those positions. You you put mines. You have artillery ready to go. I mean, that actually took time. The British Navy already existed, but in terms of uh, infantry weapons, artillery, and stuff like that, the British they'd lost most of it uh, in France. Their army was, I mean, they they were producing stuff fairly rapidly, but it takes a while for that to. They had to rebuild their their. Their, their stocks of weapons. You know, they were pulling out old rifles and issuing them to people that were from World War One and so forth. They were very short on stuff for a while after June of 1940. Now, they were producing stuff at a pretty uh, rapid rate. Uh, like one of the interesting things, but it takes a while for that production to add up. So for a while, they felt very vulnerable. They were genuinely worried up till perhaps... Oh, I don't know, September, something like that in uh, 1940. I mean, other things started to make them feel better. I mean, they're, they were starting to have to, to do better in the air. They were starting to get more weapons. Uh, and also, by the time you get deep into the fall, the weather's getting worse, which makes it harder for somebody to uh, cross the channel. Mm -hmm. uh, and not too long after that, they began to realize from various kinds of intelligence, the Germans, Hitler at least, had kind of given up on it and was thinking of something else. Uh, but if they had ever gotten, let's say, three or four divisions across the channel, I don't know what the British would have done to stop them. How many men is in a division? Uh, World War II division, uh, I mean, it varies, but let's say ten or 12,000. 
But you uh, have to be able to feed the men and equip, re-equip them. I mean, resupply them, that's... Oh, you do, but you can certainly carry enough ammo to be good enough for a few battles. Uh, and uh, And the other thing is, you know, sometimes people crack. There have been times in which it was possible to keep fighting, but it was not happening because everybody on one side had decided it was lost. And they, if they're all running, they lose. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, it takes not just weapons and numbers, but it takes a certain amount of determination. Uh, like, here's an example of a low determination situation uh, uh, when uh, ISIS, uh, which was uh, – was trying to take uh, a large town in northern Iraq a few years ago, Mosul. Mm -hmm. uh, there were something like 40,000 uh, uh, official Iraqi uh, soldiers in, in uh, Mosul, and they were attacked by apparently only a few hundred ISIS guys, yeah. and all the 40,000 Iraqi regular troops just ran. Yeah, well, they probably didn't care that much who won ultimately so why? oh sure they did i mean they, they were afraid of isis almost all the iraqis were and they deeply disliked them okay. but not enough but not enough to cooperate <laughs> and fight yeah. uh later isis was defeated uh they never did manage to get the official iraqi uh troops to be very useful but they had some shiite militia who you know weren't extraordinarily well trained but were decently motivated uh, that plus lots and lots of U.S. air power chased ISIS out later. But, you know, that's an example of and, – and it's a strong example. You know, there are other examples where people run, but only after they fought pretty hard for a long time first. Yeah. These guys went boom. But lots of people in Britain at the time had been had fought in World War One, and they're not going to run away at the first sign of well, danger. Well, but, you know, that does not make up a lot of your actual first-line troops. I mean – I mean, that's more officers and uh, – I mean, they're older. Yeah. I mean, there were, they... there were some such people. Uh, but uh, – and by the way, the British have not been famous for running away. But, I don't, you know, nobody knows what they'd act like, you know, if, if England was being in, invaded. I mean, they might have not given up at all. But, you know, no, they – they didn't have much stuff ready to resist with. That much is certainly true. They were certainly very worried about it. Uh, as I said, this problem became better because mm -hmm. uh, one of the things the Germans did, you know, the reasons are complicated, and some of them, some of them are just stupid. I mean, lots of times in life, the real reasons, once you do them, you would, they say, can that really be the reason? Because it's just kind of stupid. The answer is yes, but it is the reason, and it is stupid. So, for example, uh, the British were putting very large fractions of their manpower into military production. Okay. Germans weren't. Not not nearly as much. Uh, they didn't mobilize for what they could call a full war economy. That's something they just didn't do in 1940, and they didn't do it in 1941 either. Uh, and the background to it was that uh, uh, the Nazis thought that one of the reasons, an important part of the reason that the uh, that they had lost in 1918, that Germany had lost, was that uh, uh, you know so, uh, public support collapsed partly because uh, there weren't enough uh, consumer goods. Mm -hmm. uh, now I don't actually think that's true. 
uh, it's closer to there wasn't enough. Well, one is you'd just gone through several years of World War One, which is a very exhausting, punishing, and bloody situation. And also because it didn't look like there was any way to win. But the part of deprivation that mattered was starting to matter seriously in 1918. Wasn't you know consumer goods so much as food? Yeah, and food. Food was getting short. Were the Germans short on food in 1940? Not a bit. And there was also once enough Americans had come to Europe in World War One, there was no possibility of the Germans winning. They could have negotiated something that wasn't total defeat, but you couldn't no, motivate them by that. Wasn't going to happen either. Once it, once the Allies knew they were winning, they said, "Okay, we're going to continue and oh, actually win." From the viewpoint of the like the average German, though, what they could it was at least for. they could imagine it. But by the way, one of the things that confused the Germans. Uh, and 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 you could you could easily be confused by just looking at the map. Was the Germans had you know Russia had been defeated, mm-hmm. they'd surrendered. Uh, large numbers of German troops had been fighting in the east, and they were now freed up to do other things. And one of the things they did was they said, "Here's our chance. If we can defeat uh, you know Britain or France or some combination en- enough before the Americans arrive in large numbers." Then you know this is our chance. So they had, uh, they also had some new and better tactics for pu- punching through trenches. Yeah, the stormtroopers. Stormtroopers, yeah, and so they made these sort of. This is our last chance to win offensives in the spring yeah. of of 1918. But hey, they pushed forward, but they didn't take anything really. I mean, they didn't take anything that mattered that much. You know, they uh, uh they're. I mean, they scared the hell out of the people they were fighting because they did. They were some, you know, tactically successful. They were pushing people back. They were taking huge casualties in doing so. But, but, but one of the things that was confusing is, see, the, the total territory controlled by the Germans was probably bigger in the summer of 1918 than it had ever been before. You know, they had more France. Uh, they had, you know, they had dominating much of Russia. If you just looked at the color on the map, it looked like Germany was winning. The problem was, is that they were running out of people. They were running out of soldiers. And they were also running out of, of, well, I mean, like previously they had the hope they might be able to defeat Russia. Well, they'd already defeated Russia, but then America comes in. I mean, there's, what's the hope? Do you think they're going to be able to conquer the United States? Uh, Probably not. Uh, there, there was no reasonable possibility of winning still uh, in the cards. Uh, and the other thing is they were running short on all kinds of things. Food was getting to be a very significant uh, shortage. The uh, uh, the British blockade was had, was finally taking stronger and stronger effect. Yeah, and from the German viewpoint, right, the East gave nothing back. They didn't get a lot from conquering Russia other than not having to fight Russia anymore. They had plans – they thought they could get, for example, enough grain out of the Ukraine to be helpful, but they didn't really get tight control of the Ukraine in time to get any of the harvest from 1917. Mm-hmm. And that means you have you have to wait until next year to have a hope of getting anything much. The people who were the shortest, probably because they're slightly down the priority list, was Austria-Hungary. And, you know, again, you know, we're getting in the late summer of 1918 – People in Austria-Hungary said, "We don't know what we're going to be eating in a month." Yeah, that's. Uh, and Austria-Hungary, you know, they were sort of along for the ride. Uh, I mean, there had been several big uh, German successes, and some combined with Austria-Hungary. They had 
you know, put they had disastrously defeated the Italian army mm-hmm. at Caporetto. The Germans had knocked out the Russians. They had pushed forward in France, but you know, all do in all doing that, they had worn themselves out. They'd lost lots of guys. They couldn't do it again in France. They didn't have enough guys with the special training to do it again. We're on the yeah. We probably should go back to World War Two. We though. will. <laughs> but, but anyhow. But one of the reasons that things looked strange to the Germans is if you had just looked at the map, it looked like they were winning in 1918. Yeah. Not if you looked at, say, how many guys do you have who are left alive. Is this right why Trump should have followed through on his plan to get Greenland for the United States? He would have won re-election easily because look at the map. It would have seemed to make America much, much greater. Um. You know, if they were willing to sell, it's probably perfectly reasonable to buy Greenland. And it's and if you're just offering to buy it, uh, you know, that's not a hostile act. No, offer every Greenland resident two hundred thousand dollars. They sell. We we actually offered to buy Greenland before. Yeah, yeah. Back in I think nineteen forty seven or something. Uh, back then it was firmly a colony of Denmark. Today it's close to independence, and the Denmark said no, we don't want to, and so we said okay. Uh, but we did actually – we were interested. Anyhow, back to uh, the Germany – the Nazis believed that it was important to keep – it was important to try to make things fairly comfortable because they thought the Germans might suddenly turn against them if they weren't. Now, they were also doing other things. They were doing some – quite a bit of investment in things that try to make themselves more self-sufficient. They were making, for example, synthetic oil plants, which are possible, but the oil you get from it is relatively expensive, and it takes a lot of investment to build those fissure trope plants. Uh, but but they did not – you know, they still had a lot of uh, people working in jobs that had just been closed down in places like Britain. Uh, they still had, I don't know, half a million hairdressers. Uh in England, they said, no, we're not going to do that. You know, you need to do – they said, you will do something that we need. You, if you farm, you continue farming. If you work in industry, you're going to have to make essential things or weapons. Yeah, and the Germans also didn't fully mobilize their female population. Oh, yeah, that was part of what I was – point I was making with uh, yeah. hairdressers. Uh, but again, partly they said, well, you know, we think that – Support for our government is fragile, and who knows if they won't just quit if we if things get hard. But the funny thing about it is, of course, things got extremely hard in Germany in uh, 43, 44, and 45, and all the things they worried about never happened. They were they were trying to get people to be loyal to them who already were. Yeah, I mean, well, the same happened at the beginning of World War One. A lot of countries were like, well, we're going to call up people to fight, and they're just going to not show up. And that, that didn't happen. Um, well, there's probably a few places it didn't happen. I mean, I think that may have happened to an extent in parts of Russia. But uh, uh, I, I don't know if they expected that. I mean, I'm sure the Germans expected everybody to show up. But I'm sure, the, of course, the British didn't start out talking about a draft. I'm sure the French expected everybody to show up. I'm sure the Italians did not expect it. And I'm sure that a lot of them didn't. Uh, uh, but uh, But anyhow. Uh, the point I was talking about, you know, Hitler's mm-hmm. judgment on the largest strategic things. So he's fighting a country that's maybe 80 percent as uh, strong as him, and he's not doesn't have a, a way to finish it off. So his solution is that it's, is to attack the Soviet Union uh, in the summer of 41, and that is you're fighting another country 
which although its mix of resources is very different, it might it's also at least eighty percent as strong as you. Now you're fighting two of them, and that's crazy. Okay, let's let's talk about it. Was it crazy for the Nazis to attack the Soviets? Didn't most people at the time think the Nazis were going to easily win? Probably most. Uh, in fact, I wouldn't be surprised if Stalin thought it. So this wasn't like Japan, where I can't imagine anyone thought the Japanese were going to conquer the United States the day after Pearl Harbor. They all thought what they'd gone crazy. Oh, I mean, I could find you people in Japan who believed it, but they were crazy. Uh, yeah. uh, no, I mean, there were certainly – I mean, I could – you know, Churchill's response to Pearl Harbor is, okay, we're going to win. Yeah. yeah the was. United States is in the war. Well, actually, not quite Pearl Harbor. This is a point you – know, because nobody – you know, details matter. Like I have seen all sorts of people say, well, you know, uh, particularly with all the fantasies about how uh, uh, Roosevelt wanted Pearl Harbor to happen or knew it in advance, quote, so we could get into World War Two. I mean, into fighting in Europe. I said, well, the only reason we ended up fighting Europe after it is because Germany declared war on the United States after Pearl Harbor. Yeah, we should we should definitely get to, but let let's let's do still on whether it was. How crazy was it for the Nazis to have a war of choice with the Soviet Union? Uh, well, considering that it worked out poorly, we have to say it was a mistake. Now, yeah. was it totally obvious or might there have been ways to win it? Uh, uh, and the other question is, what does he – all right, suppose you conquer it. I mean, it would have been years before – let's suppose Russia had folded pretty rapidly. It still would have been probably several years before – Things could have been calm enough that you could have extracted as many resources from Russia as you were already getting with the Hitler-Stalin pact. They were getting a lot, and they were getting them, as I said, at low prices because the Russians said, well, if we do that, they won't want to invade because you know we're this steady, cheap source of enormous amounts of resources. But the Nazis would have had those years, right? There would have been no danger to them had they – They'd still be at war with England. But There's England, quite a chance they'd end up in war with the United States. There's plenty of ways for the United States to get in. Uh, they certainly expected it at some point. But they weren't going to – the German – I mean the, the British and the Americans weren't going to invade Europe without the Soviet Union fighting. Uh, it depends. I mean it depends what the occupation of Russia goes like. Do the Russians just roll over and, and cooperate or is there guerrilla fighting scattered over – you know, millions of square miles. Um, it's, I mean, by the way, even if it isn't, you know, militarily that significant, it can be awfully hard to make, a, you know, to to be economically stronger for controlling a bunch of stuff that is, you know, pretty chaotic. I mean, like, you know, one of the lessons of all the de decolonialization and so forth is what happens if you have a certain amount of guerrillas in your colony uh, and you can't, you know, instantly, completely stop them. I said, well, your colony is unlikely to make any money. It'll be a fiscal drain on you. Um, uh, but, I mean, the the European colonists were, colonials were nicer than the Nazis would have been to the natives. I mean, the I think that's probably a fair comparison. Uh, 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 generally, they were because, you know, it's hard to think of a European colony where, like, all the locals were killed. Uh, yeah. But, uh, uh it you know then who would have who would have farmed those i mean there's only so many farmers in germany they're already farming stuff in germany i yeah, look it's not impossible to take a place and wipe everybody out and eventually turn it into a productive asset 
but it's not real quick. Uh, well, well it, how long would it have taken them to get the oil from the Caucasus to get that up and running again? Well, it also some of, it somewhat depends how vigorously people destroy it. I mean, when they actually they got to a few oil things in '42, mm-hmm. but none of them were in operating condition, and I, the estimates I've seen is more than a year at least before any of them would have been again. Uh, they destroyed things. Uh, I mean, I don't know all the possible ways you might have of destroying an oil a facility or refineries or whatever, but uh, they were destroyed enough the Germans could get nothing out of them when they temporarily seized them uh, in the summer of 42. Uh, uh, Typically, these things do get fixed within a year or so because there were other places. Uh, You know, when the Japanese captured oil fields in Indonesia, they had them operating again within a few months. Mm -hmm. There were were some efforts to damage them. I don't know how effective. Uh, But... uh, yeah, they, they would have gotten it eventually. But even then, I said, well, you're going to have to either build roads or you're going to have to, you know, you have to have some sort of transportation to get it to Germany. It's a long way. Uh, it's not impossible. Well, don't you just you send it to the Black Sea and then ship it around? Probably. Like... Uh, probably. But even then, you probably have to build roads to get it to some port in the Black Sea. I mean, this Russia's a big place. Yeah. I mean, the biggest concentration of oil is on the Caspian near the Caspian, and there you would have, I mean, like, how do the Russians do it? A lot of things, they use tankers, I think, on the Volga. Mm-hmm. I don't believe they had pipelines back then. Uh, um, I mean, you could have figured out some way to do it, uh, but, it, again, not, you know, you might have taken a year or so. I mean, you know, for a comparison, there was, uh, you know, we the world the you know the Western Allies was short on shipping, partly because there was much more that needed to be moved. You know, wars take a, consume a lot of resources, but also because lots of shipping was being sunk by the German U-boats. Mm-hmm. And one thing we did to try to improve the situation was we built a pipeline from uh, Texas up into basically New England and New York and New England. It's called the Big Inch. It was a 14-inch uh, pipeline that they built. Uh, they said, you know, when we build this pipeline, the German submarines cannot hurt it. It's, you know, on land, and it frees up. You know, that means we can use tankers for something else. Uh, and uh, But it took like a year. And that's the United States, who's probably better at building things than anybody else in the world at the time. Uh, so, I mean, the Germans couldn't have done it less. Well, of course, they always have slavery on their side. You know, slavery, what can't it do? Uh, uh Oh, parenthetically, the Japanese tried to do something like that. You know, they were losing lots of ships to American submarines. And one thing they did was try to build more railroads that connected certain parts of their empire. Like they were trying to build, like you've heard of, like in the movie, The Bridge on the River Kwai. That's one of the reasons they're building a railroad is because a railroad can't be destroyed by American submarines. Uh, They were also trying to build some railroads I think from Vietnam into China. I don't know if they ever got that completed. Uh, but uh, anyhow, the principle is the same. Uh, now, with Russia, of course, they they never had a lot of maritime transport, so they always build railroads. But with us, it was sort of an option. You know, we America did both. Japan, for example, before the war, you know, like the typical way things were shipped inside Japan was by ship from one city to another because most of the cities in Japan are on the coast. Mm-hmm. They did not have 
much of a transportation network as we would, you know, in terms of roads and railroads. They had some, but, you know, not with a lot of capacity. Yeah, and one of their biggest fails when preparing for war was not taking that into account, not taking into account that the United States would do to Japan in a war or what. Germany I don't think they to took anything England. into account. I mean, you know, uh, but um, as I said, when when Hitler, you know, finds him, you know, first he's at war with the British Empire, which is a non-trivial problem. He says, well, I can solve it if I'm also at war with the Soviet Union, which only has, you know, 190 million people uh, and, you know, enormous resources. Uh, uh, now, you know, if he made it work quickly, you know, it might have been justifiable. But uh, somebody once said, like, when you start a war, it's hard to tell what's going to happen. Uh, uh, it's uh, uh, Somebody once said, you know, starting a war is like opening a door into a dark room. <laughs> Hitler said that. Uh, so you'd think he would be aware of that, uh, that you don't actually know what's going to happen. Uh, I mean, and by the way, this is not like invading Denmark. Denmark you invade Denmark, you do know what's going to happen, which is, you know, it'll, you'll be done in two days. But Russia's a big place. Uh, well, wasn't invading the Soviet Union probably less of a risk than invading Poland for, for Hitler? I mean, obviously, it was the Poles that would stop them, but the British and French. Well, you could say in the sense that invading Poland is what starts World War II, which is a big risk. Poland itself was not. But because... The British and France had had said, "That's it." Right. <coughs> you I mean, do that, that. Was, that was, I mean, it worked out, but short term at least. But that seems like a, a much riskier <laughs> and much stupider decision, given the information they had at the time, than invading the Soviet Union. Well, I, I remember this is from a book from a guy who was. The book is mainly sort of talking about he goes through the German officer training system and he's talking about what that's like, uh, but. When he was, you know, he was a young man just before, like maybe 36 or something, and he's talking to, you know, somebody who has one of those weird minds that you might call wise. And this older guy was saying, Hitler's a gambler. He'll take risk, and then he'll take more risk, and then he'll take more risk, and one of those risks won't work because he'll keep doing this until it destroys him. Uh, and he didn't believe it at the time, but it was it was correct. Uh I mean, start, you know, invading Poland and so forth, that was a big risk. I mean, and some of the earlier things had been big risks, too. Uh, when he, uh, you know, uh, moves into Austria, when he, when he threatens Czechoslovakia, uh, particularly, you know, at the earliest period when he got in, like when he simply uh, says, okay, uh, uh, we're going to retake the, there were certain areas that had been declared neutral by the Treaty of Versailles, like the Saar uh, industrial area along the French border. He said, we're just going to walk into it. We don't. You know, but we don't think you'll do anything. Now, he was right about that. He, you know, according to the treaty and also according to their abilities. See, Germany, he'd only been in a short time. Germany had not started to rebuild its – it had just barely started to rebuild its armed forces. What would have happened if, say, in 1934, uh, Britain and France had said, okay, you violated the treaty. We're going to send in some divisions. Uh, well, Germany would have lost instantly. Yeah, but the cost to Germany wouldn't have been that high. They, oh, they, it would have been out... great because the local officers would have taken Hitler out and shot him. Yeah, but right. But I mean, but it wasn't like Hitler was saying, well, if we lose this one, you know, a large percentage of our population will be impoverished or killed. No, but the calculation is making if we lose this one, I'll be dead. 
Or British, would the, be in Italy. I mean, he would go into exile or something. They would have killed him. And they would have been right, by the way. <laughs> but uh, there were plenty of people who didn't like him and wanted to overthrow him. I mean, the thing that protected him for a long period was success. Yeah. Uh, uh, and as you may have noticed, when he started to become less successful, you know, people start planting bombs on his plane. They start planting bombs under his uh, under his desk. They, you know, a lot of people, you know, there were at least seven assassination attempts. And I could probably think of three or four by the German army. Now, most almost all of those were later when things were going poorly. But there were plenty of people who it's, you know, the the educated guess is that if Hitler had if the if the Brit if the uh, if the Western Allies had said okay no we won't put up with your early efforts to uh, uh, in in the Ruhr and the Saar and so forth and they'd you know and they didn't have uh, you know they didn't have mobilized war level troops but they had a lot more than Germany mm-hmm. they would have moved in and uh, Hitler would have been hung from a sour apple tree I mean and they would have done it uh, because look they at least had read Hitler enough said. No more of this guy. I mean, there were interesting proposals around. I mean, to, to assassinate him. Not that anybody did anything about it from the from the Western Allies, but you know, they had fi- figured out he. They a lot of them knew he was bad news, but you know, the regular German officers and some other people, you know, they distrusted him. They trusted him more after he had won several things. You know, for a while they thought we're going to get everything we want peacefully. And, you know, a lot of people like that in Germany. Uh, but uh, or then for a while, they thought we're going to get what we want by war, but it'll be, you know, quick, decisive victories mm-hmm. uh, like against Poland and against France. Uh, but uh, but anyhow, as I said, you know, it's it's a dubious solution to your problems to bite if it doubles the number and power of your enemies. Well, now, the counter to that w- would be. You could say, well, look, the Soviet Union is a long-term threat, and if we wait 10 years, the Soviet Union will be much stronger. We'll have the Soviet Union and Britain against us, so it's better to take a chance now than it is to let the Soviet Union get strong. Uh, it's possible, I suppose. Uh, uh, of course, you know, since the alternative to fighting the Soviet Union was probably to fight the British, and if they had been able to beat them, and it's not impossible a way could have been found that then they wouldn't have been facing both of them, would they? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, but the point is, you have doubled your enemies for sure. Uh, and uh, uh, but you know, was there any reasonable chance of winning? And again, that's complicated because you know I mentioned the example of Mosul uh, in the early days of the when, of the invasion of the Soviet Union. Uh, there were in certain areas there were units that were perfectly I'm exaggerating but they they didn't seem to mind much having the Germans show up partly because there were areas the Russians had just recently conquered and very few people in those areas like the Russians so if you, and they had like they had military units that were drafted from places like that those guys weren't on their side so if you had a group full of poles you know they conquered eastern poland you had, you know, they'd occupied the Baltic countries, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. Those guys did not like the Russian, the Soviet Union one bit. Uh, and so they had particularly some of these Western units. And there were other people who probably didn't like communism very much and st- liked Stalin even worse. Uh, uh, the Russians fought poorly. Some of this was 
it was lot, some of it is inexperienced training, et cetera, but some of it is, at least some of them, us, I mean, I've heard of places in the Western Ukraine where when the Germans first show up, they throw flowers at them. Uh, but uh, the Germans were determined not to leave anybody with that mistaken idea that, that they would be better off with yeah. By the way, it, you don't need to be perfect to be better than Stalin, to be obviously more attractive. Uh, but uh, the Germans wanted to make sure don't not no single Russian should think they'll be better off under us than Stalin. So do you, do you think the Nazis would have won had they at least pretended to treat the citizens well? They said, "Hey, we're coming really to liberate you." But that would be a lie. Yeah, that's lying is wrong. That's true. By the way, there were yes, there were many many people in the German army and and other areas of the uh, the Nazi party and so forth who said, well, you know, why don't we offer the Russians X? I mean, I don't. They didn't usually say so, but one thing implicitly is when you make such promises, is there's nobody's going to make enforce them. I mean, you don't have to do it later, but you well, yeah, can I say mean, you're going to. But the, Hitler the, wouldn't. Hitler said, don't do that, because you know that would be a lie. Lie is wrong. I mean, the British and French promised the Arabs freedom if they fought against the Turks and in, in World War One, and that of course didn't See, happen. They understand that. Yeah. Uh, although, by the way, you know, uh, they weren't actually ruling a lot of those places with an incredibly heavy hand. Well, some, but you know, it's fair to say that living under the British was not like living under Stalin. Certainly. That's a that's a true statement. Uh, the uh, even if you were Irish, uh, the uh, but uh, they didn't do much of that. I mean, and they and they made it really clear. For example, when they captured large numbers of Soviet soldiers, they let most of them starve to death, which they later regretted because they said we could have used them as slaves in our uh, rocket factories and things like that. Uh, but they they just let them die. Uh, I mean, not counting the ones they shot, but most of them starved to death and. There was no real reason why that had to happen. <coughs> there weren't huge food shortages at this point or anything. Uh, the, uh, but it, by the way, it was also the thing was chaotic. There were guys who were captured. There were you know significant numbers of them escaped. You had lots and lots of word of what was happening in Russia. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a big, you know, it's a it's a lot of places to hide. And I mean, there's forests. There's people who you know who break out of an encampment. I mean. And the Germans are, you know, they're busy fighting war. They don't have, you know, these, if guys are still in encampment in Russia, if they break out, there's an excellent chance they could, some of them can get all the way back to uh, uh, Soviet-controlled areas. Others just live out in the woods for the next year. Uh, but there was a lot of information came out about how, how the Germans were treating people. And it, uh, uh, I, I've made the argument that, in a, you see, by, by, by 42, you're getting the, the Red Army was fighting hard, getting less and less. They were getting better at it, which some of that is, is experience, but they were also more determined. Uh, and one of the reasons they're more determined is they didn't have any choice. I mean, if the Germans are just going to kill you, there's no point in surrendering. Yeah. Uh, so there's a sense in which, you know, the rough, tough, competent Red Army that sort of starts showing up, uh, later, you know, increasingly with time, in a sense, Hitler created it because he made sure that the Russians had no choice. 
Yeah, you'd think the German officer corps would have said to Hitler, like, look, this is not, this is really bad what you're doing. Plenty of them did, although there were a fair number of others who said, well, naturally, he went to kill all the Russians. I've never quite understood why. But, uh, they didn't but there do were, that in World War One. No, they didn't. I mean, and, and, you know, people can change, certainly for the worse. Uh, and, I mean, the Japanese had fought in the, in, against Russia in 1905. They'd fought a little in World War One, not much. <laughs> but they had no reputation for doing the sorts of things they did in World War Two. They just didn't do them. I mean, in the, in the, in the Russo-Japanese War, they weren't famous for, uh, I mean, for example, for eating anybody. Uh, or, and they didn't horribly mistreat prisoners. Uh, but in World War II, they did. You know, people changed their minds. Uh, uh, Germans, the Germans were, there were times people talked about doing some of those things in World War One. Um, you know, after the, uh, there was a large Russian army that was destroyed with many people captured in East Prussia uh, early in World War One. And at one point, the Kaiser was saying, well, why don't we just let them starve to death? <coughs> and and nobody else paid any attention to it. And they didn't actually do that with the prisoners. Yeah. Of course, the, but, no one was paying that much attention to the Kaiser for a military strategy by the time the war had started, though. He was still sort of running things, at least for the first year or two of the war, less so towards the end. Uh, when it's more Ludendorff, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but uh, but they were talking about things. There were suggest- I mean, and there were certain other things they did that were they were definitely rougher than almost anybody else in the war. I mean, uh, you know, like Germany expected to annex a lot of the uh, of Europe if they won World War One. Mm-hmm. Uh, like when people talk about how harsh the Versailles Treaty was to Germany, it wasn't anything like as harsh as the. T- as as the German plans, if they won, yeah. probably by a factor of ten or something, they intended to annex Belgium, they intended to annex some of northern France, uh, uh, they intended to annex huge, you know, hundreds of thousands of square miles from Russia. Yeah. Uh, uh, if the if the Germans had been treated at the end of that war in the way that they that they treated other people during it and expected to if they won. There wouldn't have been a Germany. Somebody would have broken it. Mind you, they wouldn't have killed. As I said, they, back then they weren't trying to kill everybody, but somebody would have broken Germany into a bunch of small states, something like that. Which, of course, is sort of what happened at the end of World War II, where it's broken into. You know, some of the territories they've taken are are, are taken from them, and, and then they're broken into three states: Austria, East Germany, and West Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, anyhow. Uh, yeah, Hitler wanted to do that. He, you know, there were people who agreed with him. There were a lot of people who thought it was short-sighted, but they didn't get, they didn't win the arguments. Hitler was the decider, and so they didn't do it. Now they did one thing, which is a, a lot of of German units ended up recruiting a few Russians here and there, and after a while, it got to be substantial. Uh, usually to do sort of support tasks, you know, like the cook might be Russian or the truck driver might be Russian or the, the guy who's, you know, who's, who's, I mean, since, by the way, this wasn't a horribly mechanized war, you know, the guy taking care of the horses might be Russians. They called them volunteers. Uh, the short for it was in German was something called Hiwis. They had a lot of them. Uh, I think probably got up to half a million, mm-hmm. but they never had a systematic attempt of doing things like saying, uh, 
like suppose they had in the occupied parts of Russia, and they occupied a lot of Russia. What if they said, well, you guys, you get your individual farms back. We're dissolving the collective farms. That would have been enormously popular. Yeah. But they didn't do it. People talked about it, and then Hitler would say, no. Uh, and then people said, well, it's convenient to have these collective farms. That's where we'll, we only have to go to one place to steal food. But they, there were a lot of things you could have done. They didn't do them. Uh, and they were proposed, and then they were shot down. They didn't do it. But uh, So that path was something Hitler decided. Hitler would have had to have been someone else. And, of course, many things were possible then. Uh, uh, but the other question is, could have you have won doing things the Hitler way? And the answer is, you know, they came fairly close. I mean, the problem is it's logistically hard. The farther you go into Russia, the harder it is for you to get supplies. The Russians are still on their home territory. They're still getting them. Well, what if the Germans had stopped after six months and said, all right, we're now going to connect the railroads and build roads, and then we'll go again? They were fixing railroads all the time. Uh, as you know, they, They're creeping up behind them, but they're not really keeping up. And, and it slows down as the weather gets worse. And basically – you know, if they had been like 30% faster in fixing railroads, they they might well have, you know, they would have been in much better logistical shape. Maybe they would have taken Moscow or something. They came close. Their last really successful offensive, which I think was in October of, uh, was in October, November of 41. And uh, they, uh, I think the, the Russians lost, you know, they lost, I forget how many, hundreds of thousands of troops. Uh, they took them. You know the bite they took out of the Russian army in front of Moscow, Operation Typhoon. <clears throat> At the end of it, the German army was actually bigger than the Russian army for the only time in the war. They'd, there wasn't that much of the Russian army. Well, significantly less was left. They were down to like two point something million, and there were probably still three million Germans. But the Germans were tired. Their equipment was all wearing out. You know, if you drive a tank in those days a certain distance, you'd be a pretty high probability that something's not is going to break. And then if you uh, do it, drive even further, the probability goes up. And they they aren't keeping up with the damage. They aren't keeping up with the wear. And the soldiers themselves are getting exhausted. They're also getting ready. Winter's getting ready to come, and the Germans have not prepared for it. Their equipment, like Russian equipment, works in the winter. It has to. I mean, the winter's half the year in Russia. Okay, German equipment doesn't have to, and a lot of it didn't. Uh, plus things like, <coughs> you know, you're in some area the Germans have just conquered. The Russians are in some area that they've been running for years. Their their planes are in heated uh, uh, barracks, you know, uh, whereas the, the the Germans are using some cow track as a as an airfield, and they don't have heated buildings for the, and the, you know, there it, it got cold enough in the winter that the uh, Germans, you know, had to use blowtorches to for an hour to start a, an engine in the morning. Mm-hmm. It got down to, you know, occasionally to 40 below. That's that's Russia. Russia gets cold in, in central Russia. And the Germans, for, another thing is Germans didn't have cold weather clothes because they said, well, our plan is to win early. Uh, but, you know, that's not the best. You know, good plans at least have backups. And the German plans didn't have any backups. You know, for things not going smoothly. Uh, but as I said, they got close in Operation Typhoon, 
and something almost happened, which is uh, – which I think that most soul analogy is important. The Russians started to run. Uh, uh, people in Moscow, which at this point is only like 50 miles from the German army, people would go and steal a car and start driving east. Uh, apparently, Stalin discussed uh, leaving. I mean, they moved all the diplomatic corps to Kubyshev back east. Uh, they moved non-essential people out of Russia. That's a good idea anyhow if they're really not contributing to the war work because if you get surrounded or something, you're going to have to feed them yeah. or, or something. But it looks like you're getting ready to run, and a lot of people started doing that. There's yeah. a particular day in which uh, a lot of people started to run. Would it have been that bad to the Soviets to lose Moscow? Probably. Uh, Moscow area had about a sixth of German of, of Soviet war production. And they'd already lost a lot. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know, a good fraction of Russian industry, probably most of it, was in areas the Germans had conquered. Uh, like the Dnieper Basin was a big coal, iron, uh, hydroelectric area, and the Germans had conquered it. Uh, there was one large area they had not, which was in the Urals. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the uh, in terms of the... Uh, you know how developed it is. Russia, Western Russia was more developed than Eastern Russia, and the Germans had occupied it. Uh, they'd occupied about 45% of the population of the Soviet Union. Now, it's not quite as bad as it sounds because some of those areas that only <clears throat> were not really core areas of the Soviet Union. They had, you know, it's like Eastern Poland. They hadn't occupied it very long. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it isn't good. And in terms of, the, you know, it's the, it was probably 55% of their best farmland. That was worse. Uh, things were very, very tight. Uh, but anyhow, uh, yeah, there, so there was this day right after Operation Typhoon that people started to run. I think it's, there was a word for it, the Bolshoi drop, you know, it was the, the big skedaddle or something. Uh, and apparently Stalin was thinking about getting on a train and going east. And if he did, I, I think it's likely that Moscow would have fallen. Even if he's the only one and he tells everybody they should stay, I don't think they would have taken it as seriously if he hadn't stayed. Anybody, but he did not do it. He did stay. And then he you know, talked to some of the you know, the NKVD, which was the predecessor of the KGB. Uh, it did more, you know, they were interested in espionage, but also, uh, you know, local control. So they had groups organized as divisions. Uh, and they sent guys out, you know, from the political, you know, the political army, you might call it. And they said, you're not going to run because if you do, we'll shoot you. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, one of the key things is you have to make sure those guys don't run. But, you know, maybe they were recruited and were more enthusiastic. Anyhow, the running stopped. Uh, it, you know, it, it like existed for a day or so. And then uh, the the uh, political uh, cops slash army, you know, put the hammer down. Stalin didn't run, and they decided, you know, we're going to fight it out here. But the other, you know, so Moscow had a fair – Moscow is also the core of the rail net. You know, that's where the railroads meet. Mm-hmm. If the Germans had occupied it, they would have fixed the roads up to it, I mean the railroads, and then they wouldn't have frozen to death because they would have had buildings to, to live in. And it's also, you know, it's, it's easy to defend a city, uh, particularly when you probably have – you know, a better army in the first well, place. Well, I mean, when Napoleon conquered Moscow, they burned the city, maybe accidentally, but it got burned. Probably oh, Stalin would have done that. I don't, uh, it certainly was a thought. I 
and you could have burned some of it. I mean, back in Napoleon's day, it was all wood, so I think it wasn't an accident. They burned it on purpose. Uh, But uh, you could have, you know, if they had left, they might have, they probably would have tried to set it on fire. Whether, you know, how successful that would have been in the middle of the winter, it's hard to say. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, what if it's snowing? You know, Mm -hmm. there's nothing that gets more in the way of arson than precipitation. Uh, But, Anyhow, the other thing is, you know, there's all sorts of other places that their major supplies came through Moscow. As I said, it's the core of the rail net. Uh, yeah, I, I, uh, it's not absolutely clear, but it certainly looks bad for the Russians if they lose Moscow. I figure they'll probably end up losing the war. Okay, so that leads to another mistake of Hitler, right? So Hitler wanted the first, the major drive to be in the oil in the Caucasus, but he was his chief of That's staff or 42. Okay. They didn't get that close, but it is true. There were multiple objectives and people did not concentrate upon Moscow as the most important one. Uh, so for example, the, the Germans had advanced further in the North and the center than they had in the South for a long time. The Russians were still holding Kiev mm-hmm. and had large troop concentrations there. Uh, and uh, so in a sense there were choices you could have tried to leave them there and go on for Moscow but the Germans decided no we're going to take Kiev and wipe out that they said we don't feel comfortable going for Moscow if we leave more than a million troops on our flank mm-hmm. so they surrounded and destroyed that troop concentration around Kiev but that took time yeah time time is important it's sort of hard to get back uh there are other things that slowed down the Germans slightly. And again, since things were in a lot of ways look quite close, you know, you can talk about any time-wasting thing as being terribly important. For example, the uh, – uh, uh, Well, the, helping the Italians in Greece before you invade. And, and, and also invading through Yugoslavia and so yeah. forth. Uh, I think it delayed the invasion of Russia by about six weeks. Uh, and it put a lot more wear and tear on the trucks and some, although I think most of the units we're talking about probably didn't have to actually participate in it. Some did though. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, like when the Italians invaded Greece, the Greeks beat the snot out of them, uh, locally. Uh, there are still people who remember this fondly. Uh, there is a, uh, a blogger who is, semi-anonymous, but talks about genetics and stuff, mm-hmm. uh, D- and he under the name Deanakis, uh, and I think every now and then he puts up a thing honoring the men of those Greek units who beat the crap out of the Italians who invaded them. I mean, uh, perhaps he had relatives there, or maybe he's just a patriotic Greek. I fully agree with him. Uh, they did good. Uh, I mean, mind you, they weren't ready to deal when, when the real problem showed up, which is the German army. But, uh, you know, they did, they did, they did the best they could. Uh, but anyhow, the point is, you know, Hitler is now in a, he's not winning against, uh, uh, England. And he's also, you know, in the middle of a huge fight that absorbs a huge fraction of his army, probably, you know, more than half, definitely more than half at this period. And he's not winning it either. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what's the sol- so it is now 
late December 1941. What is the strategic solution <laughs> to Germany's problems of yeah. fighting two countries, each of which is a comparable power? Declare war on the United States. What yeah. else? Yeah, that w that was one of the weirder things in history. Well, I can tell you the short-term reasons, and I can tell you some of his thinking. The problem is it's all stupid. I mean, the short-term reason is <coughs> said up to that point, they had not really attacked American shipping. Mm -hmm. And they said, and we don't think the Americans are all ready for it, and we'll sink lots and lots and lots of it. And they did. They sank all sorts of tankers and things. Uh, the United States Navy was not ready for it, and not only that, for some time refused to do the things you need to do, which is convoying, you know, using some of your warships, small ones to protect groups of ships and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, Ernest King didn't want to do it. Why? I don't know. Probably because he was crazy. Uh, Ernest King was the head of the Navy. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, he, you know, it got to the point where basically it started taking direct presidential orders and things to get him to start doing stuff. The total amount of shipping we lost in those first, you know, say three months or so after Pearl Harbor, uh, like in terms of its value and its capacity, it's kind of comparable to the amount of stuff we lost at Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the Germans hoped for that, uh, that they could sink a lot of American shipping. Um, what else? He didn't think, uh, Hitler didn't think that America could produce very good armies. And also somehow didn't think that they could very rapidly switch to producing uh, useful weapons. Uh, but we could. Although, I mean, it's not that there wasn't, it didn't take time and there wasn't a cost to it. So, like, did the Germans have better tank designs than we did? Yep, they did. Although some of ours were at least decent, uh, at least early, you know, when they were first introduced. Uh, did we, uh, did, are, were our infantry weapons as good as the Germans? Nope. They weren't. Uh, but did we produce a, a lot, a whole lot of stuff? Some of which, by the way, was qualitatively even or better. Uh, the planes we and the British were building were not inferior, and after a while, they started to get better than the Germans. And Hitler, when he declared on America, he must have known that he was in for a long war. There was no – it wasn't like, well, we'll temporarily reduce support to England and then we'll have won and then it won't matter that much. I think – well, he was still hoping to win in Russia. And if he had, certainly things would have been much better for his strategic situation. He would then only been – but uh, see, the problem was if you look at uh, – you know, basic industrial statistics and manpower and things of that sort. You can come up with, uh, you know, reasonable estimates of what different countries could do. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you want to, you can collapse them into a single, let's call it a power number, which is, you know, if you were fighting a country with the same number as you, it would be sort of even. Mm -hmm. If somebody else took that country and somehow – modernize this thing so that their old number is multiplied by two, well, you're not going to be able to beat them if your number stays the same. So, um, like, if you look at uh, – now, all of these have modifiers. So you're saying, well, country X is, uh, you know, their overall uh, – you know, the, the, the simplest way we would model this, their production is X. But let's suppose they've just started producing because they only got in the war late. Then you gotta t it takes some time for that to be fully expressed. Mm -hmm. That much is obvious. Uh, or you might say that uh, country X has all sorts of 
industry, but it's short on the resources it takes to make things. To those that industry, like uh, Germany conquered, Germany had a lot of industrial potential. Uh, it was probably the second largest economy in the world in terms of industrial potential, but it wasn't a close second. So if we call the strength of the industrial strength of Germany applied to war things one, the number of the United States is probably at least three. Yeah. Now it takes a while for that three to be realized because you know we had we were ramping up like you know if we're talking 1937, the United States had an army that was 27th largest in the world and not terribly well equipped. We had an army smaller than that of Romania. Uh, our navy was pretty big, uh, but even there, you know, money was kind of tight. You know, things like, oh, we can't actually test any of our torpedoes; they're too expensive. Uh, but once we got into gear, we were catching up very rapidly. And as I said, there were areas in which we technically we were very strong, uh, like like uh, air, like uh, fighters and bombers, for example. Uh, it wasn't long before we were producing stuff that was very competitive. And, uh, and also, you know, uh, we cooperated with our with I was going to say with some of our allies, by which we basically mean one. You know, there was technical interchange with England, uh, some of it very fruitful, like that uh, that improved radar uh, the approach, or like the like our best fighter of the war. We was the P-51, which we made, you know, later in the war. But the thing that really souped it up is they put a Rolls-Royce engine into it. We actually cooperated in a very real way with the Germans. The, uh, I mean, excuse me, with the British. Uh, the Germans, uh, I, you know, technically they could have cooperated with the Italians, but not much came from it. Uh, and, you know, technically they could have with the Japanese, but it was difficult. It was hard for them to even talk to each other. Uh, and uh, there wasn't much technical. I mean, they occasionally tried to, to, to uh, you know, like to, you know, send blueprints and things. To, like you might want to try making some of our weapons, Japan, so you can cause America more trouble. And they would have to do it by submarine. And more often than not, the submarine would not make it. Yeah, I mean, the the big mistake for the Axis power was Japan not attacking Russia and attacking the United States instead. Yeah, but I think very. I can't even find many historians who realize that. See, the only, you know, you have two strategic facts which the Jap most of the Japanese didn't understand. Well, I mean, there are four or five other facts they didn't understand too, but one of them says the only way you win this war, or actually the only way you don't lose this war is if Germany doesn't lose. Mm -hmm. Although they had a notion, which was, you know, only moderately crazy. Their ideas will grab a lot and then the Americans will have to fight, you know, inch by inch on a bunch of islands in the Pacific that they don't even like, and they'll get sick of it, and then we'll get we'll get to keep half of it there. That was, except they start out by attacking Pearl Harbor, which makes us so angry. There's no chance for that strategy to work. And of course, the United States employs the obvious strategy of sudden submarines to attack shipping around Japan. And well, the uh, the other th which you know, by the way, they did very little in terms of effective anti-submarine work. They just, I thought it was boring or something. I mean, there's all sorts of strange things the Japanese did. Uh, well, like, like you could easily argue that we should not have shot down Yamamoto because he was such a terrible admiral that, we sh that they couldn't possibly have found anybody worse. <laughs> uh, I mean, like, like the point is, 
Pearl Harbor. It's tactically successful. What does it do? I mean, let, let, what if, as an alternative, they had occupied Malaya, Indonesia, French Indochina, Burma? In other words, they attack all the, un, the essentially undefended European colonies, but leave the United States alone. Yeah. Okay, would we have gone in said, because we, be, we believe in the right of the, of the Dutch to rule Indonesia, therefore we will go to war with Japan? I don't think we would have, at least not soon. I mean, the only thing that would have happened is we'd if we'd got a lot of newsreels showing what the Japanese were doing in the occupied countries, people would have said, shit, those guys are nasty. But, you know, the Japanese quite possibly would have not allowed people to film it. Uh, but uh, but the point is, once they attacked the Philippines and Pearl Harbor, you know, p people were furious. I mean, uh, lots of people, you know, Halsey, you know, one of our big admirals, said after Pearl Harbor, when we're done, Japanese will only be spoken in hell. But he wasn't the only – I guarantee you there are plenty of people in my hometown who thought exactly the same thing after Pearl Harbor, lots of them. And the point is if they had said, oh, we just took colonies from countries that were either occupied or busy with Germany, mm -hmm. I don't think we would have felt outraged. America typically wasn't even for that mm -hmm. colony. I think Japan's smartest strategy would have been to go to Britain and said, look, we'll, we'll send a bunch of destroyers to help protect your seas. We'll send a bunch of fighter pilots to help you. Let us – give us the colonies of the countries that Hitler conquered. We'll be your best friend. Just declare yeah, they're well, ours. What fun would that have been? Uh, the uh, – uh, but anyhow, Yamamoto, uh, other – you know, he also planned the Battle of Midway. I had friends – who wargamed this on a board game at 11 and they came, when they were 11 years old and they were saying, but why is Yamamoto doing this? And the answer is, nobody knows. It doesn't, like he, he does lots of just plain screwy things and they don't work. So the, now this, the stupidest thing I've heard of the, from the Battle of Midway is that they, the Japanese wanted a big battle to crush the United States, but they didn't send all of their aircraft carriers to the big battle. They sent they sent one, one uh, they had some smaller carriers that could have been helpful, but they didn't send them. Uh, they sent them in a, like we're going to do these diversionary raids uh, on Alaska, for example. I said, but we weren't diverted. All you've done is not concentrate your forces. The Japanese liked complicated plans with all sorts, you know, with sixteen balls in the air at once, and uh, typically plans like that are unlikely to work. But they liked them, and they did them anyhow. I mean, concentrating forces is a big military doctor. That's a kind you of think? basic thing. Yeah, well, you, that's what you apparently do they had a battle. Never, they apparently they had really learned it. Uh, or, or here's another thing, which is, uh, yeah, you know, you talk, you brought along uh, a large fleet of you know conventional ships, not carriers, mm -hmm. battleships, cruisers, etc. It was back behind the others. It never came into play at all. It used enough. It used enough oil to make oil short in Japan, just going out to mid Pacific and back. Mm -hmm. But and Yamamoto was on those ships, so <coughs> at times when he was, uh, you know, when it would have been useful for him to tell things to the carriers, he felt he couldn't send any messages because it would give away the position of this what they call the main body. Mm -hmm. Then why is he there? You know, he's in the middle of that fleet. See, if he was back in Tokyo, he could talk to them on the radio. He could talk to anybody. All he would do was give away the position of Japan. And we pretty much knew that already. 
where Tokyo was, he was he's not really giving away much. But when he was on the main body, he couldn't talk to his guys. He could talk to other people in the main body, but it never showed up in the battle. He did screwy things. But my favorite screwy things, uh, screwy thing, which is, you know, strategically wonderful for us, was, uh, uh, you know, say late in 42. Things are starting to, they're starting to get pushed back, the Japanese are. And they're starting to be islands where there are Japanese troops, and we just, you know, once once that island has no ships, once it has no working airplanes, we just leave them there because what harm can they do us? The yeah. island itself is usually not important to us. Yeah. So this is called the island hopping strategy. But it, it was mostly, you know, it sort of happened naturally because they said, well, we don't have enough troops to occupy all these islands. And then very shortly thereafter, people realized, why do we even want to? We just need to take a few as air bases. We don't need to take all of them. So we started having these isolated Japanese garrisons, and some of them were pretty large. Uh, I think on uh, New Ireland around Rabaul, they had 100,000 Japanese troops. But after a while, no working airplanes, no ships. Leave them. Who cares? Uh, but... Uh, uh, Yamamoto started a policy of using Japanese submarines, and their submarines were decent. Uh, the submarines themselves were not quite as good as ours, but they had much better torpedoes. Now, they had had a doctrine that was different than ours. We mostly wanted to go out and sink commercial ships because if you, you know, cargo ships, if you sink enough of them, Japan stops. Yeah. And it's safer to sink those, safer for the sub than it is to go after a destroyer or something. So, you know, if you if there is a safe way to destroy the enemy, you do that first. Okay. The Japanese had a policy of typically aiming their submarines at major American warships, and they got some. You know, we lost carriers, several, and other ships to Japanese submarines. So in the long run, that strategy was not as good, but it had some successes. But Yamamoto came up with a, a much better strategy. You use the submarine to take tiny, useless amounts of supplies to isolated garrisons. Uh, you can't possibly bring enough to feed them because submarines have very little cargo capacity. So. I mean, I could see sending you know, a visit or two just to show you still cared. Uh, uh, like in, in Rabaul, you know what you, the guys in Rabaul, you know what they did for the last two years of the war? They farmed. <laughs> Makes sense. Uh, and for example, if you sent them seeds, you know that's kind of cost-effective. Yeah. Uh, or maybe vitamin pills, or you know, medicine or something. But taking increasing fractions of the Japanese submarine fleet, which you know, which had been fairly effective against American warships, and you're taking them out of the war because they're just sending tiny amounts of supplies to guys who can't fight because. They're just trapped on an island somewhere. Uh, Yamamoto is the guy who decided to do this, and they kept doing it more and more until after a while most of the Japanese submarine fleet is spending their time taking tiny amounts of food to isolated garrisons. So <coughs> when we isolated a garrison, it wasn't just that there was Japanese army units that are out of the game. They're pulling out the Japanese submarine force out of the game too at the same time. Uh now, why did he do this? I said, well, there's kind of a simple principle here. You know, there's lots of things like this, like uh, 
you, you ask, you know, somebody does something that's apparently really stupid and self-destructive and, you know, hurts his side, says, what's the reason? Well, usually because he's an idiot. Mm -hmm. And many people are. Uh, uh, so uh, um, probably we should not have shot down Yamamoto. Who knows what other dumb assery thing he would have come up with that we just let him live. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, maybe they would have found a way to, uh, you know, raise chickens and destroyers or something. I mean, I don't know. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, anyhow, you know, did the Japanese realize – oh, by the way, there is a dark side, which is I said the only way the Japanese don't lose is if Germany doesn't lose. Mm -hmm. Okay. But if Germany wins, then Japanese have to have to live with them, and that probably wouldn't have been really pleasant either. But uh, – but I guess one question is whether the Japanese could have made a big contribution to defeating the Soviet Union. I don't think it's absolutely clear. Logistically, it looks hard. They're far away from the central, you know, from the areas of Russia that really matter. Mm -hmm. What could they have done? I could tell you a couple of, like, if they were at war with Japan, I mean, with the Soviet Union, what could they have done? Uh, they probably could have cut off. You know, one of the major, you know, there were three routes by which uh, uh, supplies from the Western Allies got to Russia. Mm -hmm. At first, it was up uh, through the Arctic, you know, north of the Scandinavian countries to Murmansk, uh, the Murmansk run. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, later, uh, Russia and Britain basically seized Iran and uh, sent supplies across Iran. Mm -hmm. The third way was. We sent supplies from Alaska at West Coast ports to uh, uh, Vladivostok. Uh, that was uh, a significant uh, – by the way, the way we did this is, see, Japan was neutral versus the Soviet Union, so we would give the Russian ships – they're now Russian ships – and then we filled them full of goodies, and then they take them to Vladivostok, and the Japanese didn't attack them, except you know once or twice by mistake. For that matter, we attacked them once or twice by mistake. Submarines can make mistakes when they fight at night, but generally it worked fine for the Russians. Uh, that they could have cut off. There's one other thing that uh, the uh, the Russians found out that the Japanese were planning not to attack the Soviet Union. They had a, an effective spy, a guy named Richard Sarge, in the German embassy, in, in the German embassy in Japan, and he found out through his contacts that. Uh, Japan was not planning to attack Russia. And when Russia knew that, what they did was they actually had some pretty good army units in that area. Mm -hmm. And what they did is they largely replaced them with uh, lesser units, you know, units that were in, in the middle of training, that sort of thing. And they had divisions that were well-equipped. I mean, one reason they had been well-equipped is there had actually been some fighting between the Russians and uh, Japanese which the Russians had won rather easily. Mm -hmm. That's another reason the Japanese were probably reluctant to attack Russia. Kalkan Gol and Nomahan. Uh, but some of those Russian units were well-equipped. Uh, they had some combat experience, which, so they were more effective than most. And those Siberian divisions uh, were brought into Moscow around uh, Christmas and, and, and the early New Year, you know, Christmas of 41 and the next few weeks. And they helped the Russians. Uh, now, what would have happened if the Japanese had been attacking? I said, I think they would have had to do it anyhow and just say, okay, take Vladivostok. We can't be everywhere. 
Yeah. Uh, That assumes Stalin would have made the rational decision in that case. That's the kind of rational decision he was getting steadily better at. Uh, uh, You know, like one thing about uh, World War II is it uh, made the Russians get more and more sensible. I mean, in a sense, it made a – I mean, it made the United States get more sensible. I mean, there's all sorts of things that we'd like to believe, and we believed them less after we tried them, and they didn't work. Uh, all sorts of people did things like this. I mean, sometimes it's on a narrow technical military subject. Like you said, I thought that, uh, you know, lightly armed, fast-moving things with, with big guns would be uh, effective against tanks that are heavily armored. And the answer is, you know, we call ours tank destroyers. The answer is actually not terribly so. I mean, but there were other lessons people used, learned. Uh, uh, I mean, the Soviet Union said this idea of having a commissar in every uh, military unit who has the ability to veto uh, and inform on the veto commands of the commander and inform on him all the time and constantly be looking over his shoulder and checking to see if he's a good communist, uh, said we don't want to do that so much because it's making us lose. Okay, so, you know, there's a lot of things in which the Russians got steadily more sensible. And they had a long way to go since their government had been one of the less sensible ones on Earth. Uh, interestingly enough, the Japanese, you know, they seemed a lot slower to learn than the Russians. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's all sorts of basic things. They just didn't learn. They didn't seem to want to. Uh, uh, I mean, they never learned how to deal with sort of standard infantry from a Western country. I mean, they won some in the beginning against, you know, the troops they ran into in places like Malaysia and Burma are kind of, you know, the British had reasons to not keep their best troops there because they're fighting the Germans at the same time. But later, like, you know, when the Japanese run into U.S. Marines, they're usually, you know, for every Marine that dies, it's typically 10 Japanese. They weren't very good. They were very enthusiastic. More dedicated than anybody you've ever heard of. But they weren't good, and that that's not because of equipment reasons. That's because of tactics. Some of it's equipment. Uh, they tended to have inferior and less equipment. United States, you know, our equipment was all right for infantry warfare. I mean, the Germans was better, but ours was not bad. And uh, one thing is, you know, all the major countries except Japan – had done a lot of land warfare in World War One and had learned certain lessons. Japanese had not had that happen. And we didn't bother to study it. It's funny because, you, you know, you could just read a book or ask people. It wasn't a secret. Or have uh, German military advisors before, you know. Yeah, the but war I, they, hits. they, you know, the Japanese would explain that, you know, screaming and running at somebody with bayonets and swords, well, they were bound to surrender. And by the way, a few times in the early part of the war, it worked. So that's later, of, that's what the French believed at the beginning of World War One, right? We have bright colored uniforms and we charge the enemy and our spirit will win the day. They were never as bad as the Japanese, but yeah, they had some of that. And they said, well, that doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the Japanese, the funny thing about the Japanese is they would keep doing it even after it didn't work. Well, you had the, in the Russo-Japanese War, the Japanese didn't do well, as you said before, that they didn't update their doctrine to take into account. Well, I mean, the, again, some of these things were not as – machine guns were less of a problem then than they became later. Yeah. Uh, 
But uh, but artillery was still a huge problem for. Well, I mean, the Japanese lost lot. The Japanese lost lots of guys. Uh, but the thing they had going was uh, the Russians. The Russians aren't the best, particularly if they, in a peacetime, aren't the best soldiers in the world. It get better if they fought for a while. Yeah. But uh, the big problem I would say with the Russians was they were logistically at the end of a long string. I mean, you know, the only way they could get supplies to the Russian army was by the Trans-Siberian Railroad. That's it. One railroad. There's no other way to supply their armies in that uh, war. And, and it wasn't even quite finished in 1905. I think you had to take a boat across Lake Baikal to get to the railroad on the other side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, the Japanese, you know, you just, you're just taking boats back and forth to Japan. You're logistically much closer to your sources. But uh, – but the Japanese were starting to get ground down by the Russian numbers. Uh, the thing that saved them is the political situation fell apart inside Russia. You know, they started having, you know, many revolts and things. And the Russians said, we got to make peace because, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but, uh, but at any rate, the Japanese in World War II, uh, you know, as far as infantry goes, you know, they were terrible. They were bad. Uh, uh, the uh, – and. Uh, with a few exceptions, they were reluctant to change. Uh, uh, I remember, uh, like, you know, when we first had our – we landed our guys in, on Guadalcanal. We had about 16,000 Marines, which was – you know, sometimes we had very big divisions. Uh, that Marine division had about 20,000, but most of them were on that island. Some others were over on another island. Mm-hmm. And the Japanese – the Japanese did some photo recon and said, yeah, it looks like they've landed a Marine division. And some officer said, nah, it can't be that many. It's probably only 2,000. They said, all those supplies, Americans need lots more supplies. They need lots more food than Japanese. So if you see a certain amount of supplies, you have to divide it by about eight to show the real number of Americans. Where did this come from? Out of his ass. It was made. He didn't know anything. But he was a higher rank. So, uh, And so the official doctrine for, like, months was that there were only 2,000 Marines on the island. So for one thing the Japanese did is they landed a force of about 1,000 under a guy who was a real fanatic and had helped cause some of the war in China. You know, that was part of the background of the Japan is, of course, Japan doesn't actually have what we call a government. I mean, the way decisions were made would be there'd be negotiations between guys in the army and Navy about what they were going to do, and you know, uh, and it, sometimes it was hard to tell if the decision had actually been reached. I mean, there was no guy at the top of it most of the time who could just confidently say, "I am the president of Japan. We will do X." Uh, I mean, like I mentioned, those fights with Russia, the Japanese army in. Uh, involved had decided on its own to start a war with Russia. It hadn't cleared it with Japan, with you know, with Tokyo, and it hadn't even cleared it with the Army Command in China. They just said, you know, let's start a war with Russia. What could go wrong? I mean, well, for the attack on Pearl Harbor, then was that a consensus of all the big decision makers? That kind of was, uh, although they had difficulty enforcing it. Uh, they wanted Yamamoto. He had a he had a good reputation as an admiral. Complicated because you know he wasn't he wasn't he didn't think that the chance of beating the United States was very good. He thought we'd pro- they'd probably lose. Mm-hmm. He was worried about it. Uh, 
And uh, he was not because he was not enthusiastically for war. He had to spend most of that time at sea to avoid being assassinated. See, this this was what you might call management from below. You would have, you know, you would have secret societies of army colonels who would say, "We don't like government policy. Let's kill the prime minister." And then would and they would either succeed or even when they failed, that people would forgive them because you know they meant well. Yeah. I think they called it a mostly peaceful protest. Uh, I mean, literally, they would be trying to assassinate people, and then they'd all be pardoned. But this guy was influential in one of those secret societies. So they landed him on Guadalcanal with a thousand guys, and he uh, there was a, a river with Marines on the other side of it. You know, they had some barbed wire. They had machine guns. You know, they had you know typical you know infantry stuff. And he said, well, we'll just charge and scream a lot, and I'll wave my sword. And so the Marines killed all of them. They said, well, we kind of have to. They're coming at us and everything. Uh, and uh, uh, later, they found his diary. Uh, you know, he was dead, but apparently he had time to write. He said, we have neglected firepower. Uh, I said, and they, for a long time, they continued to neglect it. Uh they would say, well, but, you know, Americans won't fight. And I says, well, what if they do? And they have lots of machine guns and mortars and things, and you don't. Uh, I said, well, 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 that would be cheating. We would lose then. But uh, they'd read a book on the Civil War that was not the theory that we don't fight didn't quite hold. Well, it's entirely possible that uh, – I mean, look, as again, why did they have – did they get the impression the average American was not terribly interested in war – that uh, they were not terribly enthusiastic about having their sons be, get into the military, that uh, that people actually uh, looked down on officers so that, for example, in the early 30s when Eisenhower was doing, you know, going to do something in Washington, he would often wear civvies because he was afraid people would insult him or spit on him uh, as, because he was an officer. Did they? It wasn't like that at Japan. I said, but it turns out that doesn't translate necessarily into being bad fighters. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I mean, you know, there were complications. There's always complications. Like the Japanese foreign minister, somebody who was really for getting into war with the United States. He had spent some time in the United States. I think he went to the University of Oregon, Matsuoka. Mm -hmm. uh, I may have the name slightly wrong, but but he had spent time here, and. Uh, and for a while, he was sort of friendly with the United States, and later he decided he hated us more than anybody in the world, to the point where uh, I found guys who worked with him both inside Japan and also in diplomacy who thought he was actually just insane. <laughs> I remember there was a guy in the Japanese cabinet who thought he was talking about Matsu, you know, after we had a meeting, he says, you know, he's actually over the past, he's crazy. And uh, I think that there were guys in the State Department who thought the same thing. And they may well have been right. Uh, I think it all has to do with probably some uh, disappointing romantic experience with a co-ed at the University of Oregon. Um, actually, that's only partly a joke. I know examples of foreigners who uh, ended up leaving the United States embittered because of things like that. Uh, I think that the guy who founded the Muslim Brotherhood you know, was like irritated watching a college dance at the at Colorado College or something. You just, you know, people are, the real reasons for things are not necessarily some deep logical thing. They're, they're the actual reasons. Uh, 
But uh, uh, like Hitler, you know, he had certain ideas about American capacities, but they weren't based on a whole lot of interest or knowledge. He just said, yeah, they're probably not very good. But the, uh, the German military still had a lot of influence, and you'd think <laughs> they would have had someone look at the United States as potential, and that would have been common knowledge among the officer corps. Uh, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think some of them knew something about it. I mean, in Japan, some people knew something about it, too. Uh, I know that Yamamoto did. Uh, but, uh, I mean... I mean, the United States was a lot richer than Japan at the time. I mean, anyone walking through American cities would have seen very clearly Well, we're, you know, one of the fundamental things, and I, I don't think the average American realizes this, but, see, cars were common in the United States. Yeah. And even in the 30s, they were making several million cars a year. Okay. Most people in America knew how to drive. A lot of people had worked on cars. A lot of people were used to cars. <coughs> okay. What other countries were making millions of cars a year? Well, there weren't any. How many other countries were making 100,000 cars a year? There weren't any. In terms of, you know, that aspect of life, uh, even countries that had, you know, fairly significant industrial production, they didn't do it. And it was not, you know, it was possible to convert those factories into making, you know, tanks, trucks, jeeps, bombers, and we did. Uh, uh, the United States, so when I was talking about, you know, fundamental, if you had a fundamental power number for each country, uh, that, you know, in terms of economics, the United States would be, I don't know, three, three and a half. Germany would be one. England would, England plus the colonies that are a net contributor, which is you know probably more Canada than anything else, 0.8. Russia, uh, similar, but but it's complicated because it depends on exactly what you got and how you use it. The Germans got more mileage than you would think out of their GNP because their armies were better, man for man, and better organized. You know, just make a decision like we're going to have armored divisions rather than spread tanks evenly through the whole army. It makes you considerably more powerful. So the Germans and uh, and the and the Japanese Navy was the Japanese Navy was better than than Japan deserved in terms of its industrial potential and stuff. It was well developed. Japanese Army was crappier than the uh, Japan deserved. But the point is, you know, how good you are at things modifies things like how it isn't just how much capacity it has. It's also you know how good you are at using it. The Germans had better tactical ability and they used that to do things like defeat France. And of course that actually improved their strategic odds. Uh, I mean, if you look at the, the capacity of England plus France, it was at least as big as Germany, but that's not true after France has been conquered. Uh, the, uh, I mean, like did heads of state think this way? I don't, I mean, some of them, I think, did in a rough sense. I know, for example, that uh, like after the United States got in the war, literally Churchill says, "I am no, I'm no longer going to have nightmares about how we're going to be conquered. We're going to win." He said, "I, it's inevitable." I mean, I don't. I'm not saying he liked hearing about the guys lost at Pearl Harbor, but he said England once the United States was in the war against Germany, he said we won. Uh, so some of these things people saw. But other people didn't see it. Hitler didn't see it, or he wouldn't have done it, right? He wouldn't have declared war in the United States. Uh, 
I can think of – I know what some heads of state said, but some of this is in retrospect. I know what Stalin thought about the potential of the United States. He said it is the strongest state in the world. But, he might, but I don't remember when he said it. It might have been at, you know shortly after the war. Uh, but but you know you know Marxists would believe in things like you know that the number of steel mills and the amount of electricity produced matters, and they're right. But it's not the only thing that matters. Uh, uh, but those numbers are you know like what was it? Uh, I used to roughly I think German steel production was like 25 million tons and the United States was 60 and uh, England was you know maybe 16 or something and then the United States not having any domestic threats I mean we didn't have to occupy like Mexico or something and not use those troops or have to worry about well, we, our factories we could have but, no but you know the, the fact that you have a homeland that's not is not significantly threatened in any way. Right. It's 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 a plus, but there is an associated minus. The minus is you have to ship everything long distances to get there. So you like one thing that was a cost, and it, it took a while. It made it harder to to make use of American production for military purposes. Is we also have to build lots and lots of ships to get things there, mm -hmm. and uh, and. Probably lots of ships to guard the ships that get things there. Uh, I suspect we spent more money on anti-submarine stuff than the Germans spent on submarines. We built lots of things. We and which I mean doesn't mean we didn't succeed eventually, but I think it was expensive. But but it takes time uh, because you know so everything we do factoring the cost we have to build thousands of ships too, like you know. We could do X to Germany, but we can't do it until we got our supplies and men close to Germany. Uh, so we have to we have to get ships to take equipment to England, basically, uh, and enough to keep England in the war and so forth. And, and in the Pacific, it's even worse uh, because every, the distances are longer. If you have to go twice as far, you basically have to use twice as many ships. Of course, the Japanese had their logistical problems. So, oh, they did, and they were bad at serve. At, uh, but, uh, uh, but you know, a lot of the things we did, we said we have resources, but we've got to use them. But we've got to get them there. It's just not enough to have gas. We've got to ship it clear across the Pacific. Mm -hmm. uh, they actually, their problems were simpler. In most places, they didn't have any problem. You don't have to ship it, but uh, uh, they had some. But and they and they they did have. Ever, ever worsening logistic problems. But the point is, that slows down how long it takes to get things done. Uh, and it means sometimes we had to use indirect methods. Like, uh, of course, some of those methods ended up working. Like, uh, like the Germans would say, we can attack country X, we'll just go up to the border and drive over. The United States said, well, we can't actually get to Germany right now that way, but we could build bombers. Yeah, let, let's talk about that. Was that a mistake for the U.S. to put so many resources into the bombing campaign against Germany? Oh, no. Worked. Okay. I mean, what do you mean it worked? Okay. Uh, what it means is that, uh, uh, you see, some of the numbers you will meet uh, look confusing. I mean, if you look at, you have numbers for German industrial production, and it's going, I mean, partly because they, they start trying harder later than some mm -hmm. other countries. 
but it's growing very rapidly in 43 and 44 and it grows it increases every month up to December of 44 mm-hmm. and so people would say well that just shows the bombing campaign didn't work but they're wrong two things what is otherwise german production would have gone up even more mm-hmm. but the other thing which is not usually mentioned uh, is what the, is it was a shift in what they were producing so by the summer of 44 more than half of that production is either going into uh uh you know fighters they're trying to use to intercept the 8th air force or at aircraft guns it's not going into tanks in russia it's not going into tanks in france mm-hmm. Because they're having to put more and more of the resources, more than half of all their industrial production, into air defense. That counts. Mm-hmm. <coughs> so what happened is early in 44, <coughs> the Americans and British got together and they said, you know, they said, we have some new possibilities. We have more and better fighter planes. We can do things we couldn't do before and one of the things we're going to do is we're going to we have sort of two goals we are going to find targets they can't live without things like the synthetic oil plants mm-hmm. and then we're going to have we're going to go in there and the, the german air force will come up to fight and then we'll destroy it because we ha- with our new fighter planes our our mustangs our p51s and so forth <clears throat> we have plenty of them they're good our pilots have enough experience what we're doing is we're forcing them to fight a decisive battle. They don't want to fight a decisive battle. They would like a little slack so they'd have time to train pilots and stuff. We're not going to give them any. Mm-hmm. And so they, they came up and we shot them down. We came up and we shot them down. And after a while, <clears throat> even though they were frantically making fighters, which, by the way, were most of which were kind of obsolete because they were so far behind they didn't have time to switch to a new and better model, they're still making a lot of you know, earlier models, because, mm. you know, when you get behind, you get behind in every way. Yeah. So uh, it's like the, the number of planes over Germany at any given time is like, you know, 90% of them are allied planes. It gets to the point where, you know, if if you have a, a railroad train going along the, uh, the track, it's likely that an American or British fighter will show up and just shoot the hell out of it. Everything you do, they're everywhere. You know, they're like hawks constantly looking for trouble. And so, they then, fight. so then was Stalin mistaken in <laughs> insisting that an Allied invasion of Germany? Shouldn't he have said, keep the air war that way out, my troops will occupy more and more of Europe? Uh, well, you know, he was always uh, – you know, it's a question. Uh, I mean, if – if the German, if we had said we will not invade Europe, that's different from not invading Europe. Like if the Germans said we don't have to, they said, okay, you know, ninety percent of those troops in France, we'll keep just here enough to hold down the French. Okay, so, so Stalin should have said, okay, yeah, keep delaying when you're going to invade. I don't. It doesn't have to be soon. Build up your forces and but keep well, up I mean, the air campaign. It's not like he could tell us. He could tell us what to do until he's blue in the face. That doesn't mean we'd necessarily do it, but. Yeah. Our thought was we were worried if we didn't do too much that he that the Russians would get to some point and say yeah we've had enough now we will have a uh, a truce with the Germans and let the Germans beat on us and we'll make it much harder to defeat them uh, was it possible to imagine a, a, a separate peace between the Russians and Germans oh yeah because they'd already done it once right yeah. with the but 
one question is how close did this come to happening again? And the answer is um, it was discussed a little. I mean, all right, we know that you know when things look very bad around this time of late '41, mm -hmm. the, uh, Stalin was talking to people of maybe I should offer the Germans uh, like a standstill ceasefire. By the way, this standstill ceasefire would be when they were within you know 20, 30 miles of Moscow. So this is clearly an offer from weakness. Yeah. Okay. Uh, he, for example, talked to the Bulgarian ambassador about – I think Bulgaria is one of the few countries in the world where people actually like the Russians. Uh, but uh, the Bulgarian ambassador said, don't do it. Keep fighting. You'll win. Even if they pushed you out of Moscow, you'll still win. Never give up. You'll win. And Stalin nodded and said, interesting. I mean, I don't think he considered uh, that you know to be for sure right, but it was – you know, it cheered him up a little. Well, he probably didn't trust the Germans, and the Germans would have just built up the railroad network and then attacked again. Well, the other thing is the Russians would have built up too. I mean, the Russians already were producing weapons a lot faster than the Germans, and some of them better. So, you know, I'm not sure how it would have worked out. Uh, but uh, uh, I think there actually was a time in which he – Offer, made some offer to list, you know, this, this November, December, but the Germans ignored it because they said, look, we're going to win. We don't need to. But the Germans weren't really going to win in conquering all of the Soviet Union, right? They were just going to go up to a certain point. <coughs> I think they were talking to the Urals. Yeah. So they were, they were planning is, at some point on saying, all right, let's stop. The way they said it was, we'll go up to the Urals and if anybody attacks us, we'll go further. And if they attack us, we'll go further again. <sighs> That's what they said. I mean, I don't know what they would have done. Uh huh. <clears throat> but uh, <coughs> uh, yeah, where were we? So, um, yeah, the separate piece with the Germans. There the was Soviets. another time they talked about it, which was, but this is, I mean, I've read histories and they say there's fair amount of evidence. There were some diplomatic feelers. I don't think it went very far, and it's, uh, but. It does look like there were at some low level some conversations, like in early '43, uh, but it's very poorly known. Uh, now, I can, in terms of in, interior voices, there were several guys inside the uh, German uh, government who said, "Oh yeah, we should make a peace with uh, and, and just fight the Western Allies. We should fight." Uh, Ribbit, uh, I think Ribbentrop wanted, but you know Hitler said, "So what? I don't want to do it." Uh, and uh, there were certainly a number of people. <coughs> By the time it's really appealing to the Germans, it's because the Germans are losing, and that means their bargaining power is down. But but in early 43, I would guess what was happening is, look, the Germans had just had a big setback at Stalingrad. But when the, uh, when the Russians rushed forward, just as there was a huge part of the line where the Germans weren't even there now, they managed to get a bloody nose again because they took Kharkov, which is the eastern Ukraine, which was the uh, third battle of Kharkov, or what? No, was it right? You know, the Germans had taken it, and then there was another battle early in, yeah, early in '42, and then the Russians took it back in early '43, and then the Germans took it back again. Fourth battle of Kharkov, I guess. Uh, what had happened was Manstein was commanding in that area. 
creating some tank units. And he said that the Russians are overextended. Their supplies are not up to it. And if I make this move when they're out of supplies, even though there's more of them, I could beat them. But I also am calculating that, you know, the, the, we're going to get the thaw where all the roads turn to mud in about two weeks. And I will win before the end of the two weeks. And then the battles will stop because nobody can move. So he took, he retook Kharkov, wild numbered about eight to one. But again, if you have ammunition and they have run out, or gasoline and they've run out, you know, that matters. Uh, so, you know, the Soviets got a fairly serious bloody nose. And there was a background thing, which uh, I think influenced a lot of German generals. This one is kind of only known more recently. You see, the battle against Stalingrad was probably not the biggest battle going on at that time between the Russians and Germans. There was another big battle going up around you know, the Germans were still holding stuff not that far in front of Moscow. Mm -hmm. uh, Zhukov ran the offense there, and it apparently involved even more troops than the uh, than Stalingrad. It was called Operation Mars. Oh, yeah. Well, the, the code name for Stalingrad was Operation Uranus. Mm -hmm. But Operation Mars failed. Uh, the Russians, you know, concentrated lots of troops. But you see here the Germans were on the defensive. And they didn't have long undefended flanks. And so the Russians are going straight into, you know, quality German units that also have decent, there's a railroad going up to the area, so they had decent supplies, and they were dug in. And the Germans, you know, in a few places, the Russians punched through, and then the Germans closed around and wiped them out. I think all at the end of the day, you know, the Germans lost, you know, 50,000 or something, and the Russians lost 10 times that. And so there was this thought that, you know, if the Germans are careful, this could be more expensive than we know how to win. I mean, for example, if the Germans had just said, screw Stalingrad and pulled back, they wouldn't have lost lots of guys in the South. And there were Germans, and I think they were thinking of this, Operation Mars. They said, if we could just run Operation Mars three times, you know, let them attack us in a place where we have good defenses mm -hmm. and get to do what Germans are good at, we'll wear them down. But the Germans are good at mobile warfare, and that requires oil. And do True, they have enough? Were they running out? You know, at this point, no. I mean, the main oil support is they're said. This is 43. Allied bombing is not much interfering with the synthetic oil plants yet. Mm -hmm. And the other main source is Romania. The Russians are not taking Romania yet. They're not close. So, no, I mean, they're, I mean it's tight, but they, it's not any tighter than it was the year before. Mm -hmm. uh, so there were, I mean, I've seen, I've read Russian, I mean, German generals who were saying, you know, if we can run intelligent, smart defensives, and make the Russians really, really, really bleed. And I think, you know, Operation Mars is a good example of that. Again, on the defensive. They've done it other times on the offensive, but here they did it on the defensive. They said, if we do that, you know, the Russians, I mean, how many times can the Russians afford to lose, you know, 600,000 men? It's a, it's a finite number of times. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, for example, something like that happened in the spring of 42. The Russians had done fairly well in the winter. 
you know, they pushed the Germans back in many places, although not fantastic amounts. Uh, but again, things had gotten better for the Germans because, again, the supplies had gotten better, railroads were getting finished and so forth. So in this area around Kharkov, the Russians made an offensive in the spring of 42, mm-hmm. uh, the Barankovo offensive. And they were pushing forward, and the Germans said, you know, this is kind of a problem. But that since the Germans had already been started reinforced because they had been planning an offensive in the south, they had more local units than they had a little while ago before. They had more than the Russians expected. And they also had moved all of their air force, which had been doing stuff in the Crimea. That was finished. They moved them up. Mm-hmm. So they had air superiority. And, and so they said, well, you know, sure, the Russians are pushing forward, but if we cut through back behind them, what then? They wiped out a whole Russian army. They lost 300,000 men or something. And that's one of the reasons the Germans had such success that summer in 42. They started it out by wiping out a whole Russian army. The thing is, the Russians could afford this better than the Germans, but anybody's capacity to afford this is limited. <clears throat> I mean, so... You know, like one of the things, if you like, look at the numbers in 43, both the German army and the Russian army shrink because they're killing each other so effectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, <coughs> so if Hitler never declares war on the United States, do you think the Germans could have kept a lot of Russian territory and they would have worked out a peace eventually? I don't know. Uh Yeah, that's a that's a different option. I have to think about it a second. Uh, we were already giving lots of support to uh, England. Mm-hmm. We had started to give some support to Russia, although again, not large. Uh, you know, uh, not in forty-one, uh, but we started to give some. Uh, but uh, one of the things to remember when people talk about uh, uh, lead lease our aid base. You know, the part of it which is aid to the Russians. Mm-hmm. All right. So aid to the Russians is mainly coming from the United States and England. In the very early phase, it's mostly England because the United States is not even at war yet. Okay. So the first, you know, the last six months of 41, the British do what they can. And of course, the British, you know, they, they're kind of busy themselves. They don't have enormous, but they send some things. <clears throat> and they take some losses. There are convoys going up around Norway there's places the Germans attack them and destroy a lot of British ships. I think somebody was talking about, you know, how many British tanks are on the floor of the Arctic Sea, 5,000 oh. from sunken ships and things. But they got some stuff to Russia. Not much stuff came from the United States to Russia in 40, 41. But, there, but in 42, it starts to increase. But it's still true that only a fairly small fraction of uh, – of the total aid that gets to Russia gets there in 42. In other words, they went Stalingrad mostly on their own. Not a whole lot of supplies from other people have got there yet. Now, later, we're sending significant amounts, uh, uh, and some of which is very valuable to them, some of which they said, you know, why did you send that? Uh, so, for example, they – after. They mostly preferred their own tanks, and their tanks were probably on the whole better than ours. But we sent them 4,000 Sherman tanks. Uh, yeah, I remember this. somebody needs to make a book about the story of a tank 
there was a Sherman tank that we built. We sent it to the Russians. It survived the war, and they gave it, I think, to the Egyptians. <laughs> you know, you know, World War II tanks sometimes with some upgrades were still useful in the 60s in the Middle East. Yeah. And then it gets captured by the Israelis in the 67 war. <laughs> and by the way, the Israelis, you know, they upgraded some of them. They used some of them, but they said, no, nah, we don't want this one. And they gave it as foreign aid to an African country because, you know, they were trying to get someone in the UN to vote for them. So they gave this Sherman to Uganda, and it's the one that Idi Amin rode into the capital in to overthrow the government. <laughs> so, yeah, that would make it sort of, you know, kind of like the. I think there was a movie about a Cadillac like this once. Uh, uh, but uh, at any rate, we gave them a lot of stuff, and some of it was significant. Uh, it's hard for people to talk about this generally because, to be accurate, you have to understand the size of things and what the numbers mean. And that's most people, that's completely impossible. So I've heard people say, well, the Russians would have starved to death without U.S. food aid. The answer is yeah, we supplied about 2% of Russian food. Now, it was useful. We tended to send things that were canned, you know, stuff that was kind of useful as army rations, easy to carry, etc. So maybe its real value was twice that, but it's still true they were mostly feeding themselves. Somehow, by the way, this was, you know, things were very tight in 42 in Russia. The average Russian lost weight. Hmm. Uh, you know, you, you know, maximum effort, they were putting in something more than maximum sustainable effort that year. But... Uh, we sent them 4,000 Sherman tanks, again, useful. We sent them quite a few airplanes. Uh, but there were certain things that we tended to do that they just didn't have. So you could get, uh, you know, uh, comparative advantage, sort of. Mm -hmm. They were real short on radios. They had never had, you know, a huge, you know, it was almost as if they didn't want people listening to the news on the radio. So they didn't have much of a commercial radio industry, and the part they did have which turned out most of it was in a city the Germans had taken. So there were really practical things where, you, like, it's really helpful to have a radio and a tank. Mm -hmm. They didn't have enough. Typically, at that stage of the war, they'd only, they could only put a radio in a commander's tank, so, like, one out of 20 would have a radio. We started supplying them with radio parts because we had, you know, we had a lot of production capacity for that. We sent them, uh, we had, uh, uh, you know, the main ways that you improved octane uh, in uh, gasoline was to add tetraethyl lead, which may have had some side effects, but it worked. And uh, I don't think the Russians were really up to making it. So we, we supplied them with additives that improved the octane of their aviation gas. And that meant all else equal that their planes would, would run about 10% faster, which is useful. Yeah. Uh, we sent them... Uh, you know, maybe the most useful thing is one thing. You know, remember, part of the thing is we're not we weren't as specialized for war production as a lot of other countries. But one thing we sent them is we sent them farm trucks because we we didn't have to change them much from the farm trucks we were already making. So we sent them, you know, the sort of farm truck that's good on a crappy road. We have so we sent them like half a million Studebaker farm trucks. Yeah, and the Germans are mostly using animals, right, to pull things. Well, again, part of that reason is there's. You know, it's hard when there's a limited amount of gas. Yeah. Like, you know, like the British Army and the American Army were essentially completely motorized. The Russians were not, and the Germans were not. But the Germans, the Russians got more motorized through the course of the war. When they got to the point where they had, uh, 
you know, if they were having an offensive with a lot of tanks, they could keep up and supply them with these trucks. And not only that, these trucks could drive through mud, which a lot of Russia, there's two periods in Russia in the fall and the spring in which, you know, typically roads in Russia are not, were, in those days were not paved. Some of them aren't now. And uh, roads would dissolve into mud. and You really couldn't go anywhere. I mean, not you could walk slowly with your feet sticking in the mud, but, you know, things actually kind of stopped for a month or so in Russia in the spring and the fall. And you would have to take that into account whenever you're you know, planning something. I think it was called the Rasputitsa, which means, you know, the mud time or something like that. Uh, but but and so there were times that, you know, once it was raining in the spring, the Germans say, well, at least the Russians can't make a big offensive here. But once they had those Studebaker trucks, they could. And there were several Germans who were unpleasantly surprised by large amounts of Soviet tanks, uh, which could now be supplied, uh, you know, suddenly uh, surrounding and destroying them. Yeah. So we gave them useful stuff. Uh, you know, if I had it to do over, there's one thing I would have given them if if we had managed to produce enough. It would have been late in the war, but it would have been a useful thing to do. Oh, what? Penicillin. Oh, yeah. The thing is, penicillin didn't really get into mass production until 44 or late 43. And it was constantly increasing. So at first it was really just for, you know, at first we had tiny amounts for research. And then we had, after a bit, we, after about a year, we had enough, we had enough for soldiers. Then they started extending it to civilians and then allied civilians, you know, so, you know, but we never were sending it to Russia as far as I know. And the Russians never got anywhere on it. Again, you know, Russia's close to the edge. Things that are sort of research where you're not absolutely sure it's going to work, they didn't get done. And the Russians, uh, you know, there's an awful lot of Russians crippled around after the war. And, uh, you know, assuming that they it wouldn't have, uh, you know, helped them win the Cold War, I would have just assumed there were fewer people crippled. I mean, it's hard to... People, Americans don't have a feel for how how badly Russia was hurt by the war. Uh, like there's a, a a number that I think is a good example. You look at the sex ratio, you know, how many men there are compared to how, how many men there are for every hundred women. Mm-hmm. Uh, they looked at the age group from 45 to 49, you know, the sort of, you know, young, young middle people who get most of the world's work done. Yeah. Okay. In Russia, 1950, that number was six, 60 per hundred. Well, yeah. I mean, a lot of the guys who would be, you know, farming and building things and working in the factories were dead. In Germany, it was seven seven. Germany didn't lose as high a fraction of guys. Uh, in, uh, but but like in the United States, it's probably ninety nine, and England was similar. Mm-hmm. You know, we just they didn't lose lots and lots of people. Uh, G- Russia did, uh, and. Uh, uh, you know, even though, you know, they were the enemy in a lot of ways, it's, they're still, you know, there, I guarantee you, there were guys who would have done something significant if they just managed to be alive. <sighs> I mean, you can think of all sorts of examples like that in World War One, where, you know, uh, so-and-so said, well, he's the first guy who came up with an analytic solution to Einstein's gravitational field equations, Carl Schwarzschild. What happened to him? Oh, he died of typhus on the Eastern Front. You know, there's 
And then a lot of these guys, you know, they're young. You know, you never, you'll never find out what they could have done. It happens. Uh, but the Russians, uh, by the way, parenthetically, the Russians were never any good at medical research. I could think of a few useful things that they did, but they mostly just decided not to, and they would, you know, copy it from other countries. They just didn't do it. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, that's probably a rational decision at your at the level of development. Uh 1980, well, it never changed. Uh, uh, but, you know, basic, well, part of it was they were putting an awful lot of, you know, they had a more limited economy than Western countries, and they concentrated it in the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, they could keep up sort of on that, but they tended not to on much else. Yeah, uh, the trade-offs. Anyway, we've been going for over two hours. We should probably wrap it up. Okay. Uh, anyhow, if we were talking about, uh, the, the one question that proliferated in many directions was, you know, did was Hitler a good uh, strategist? The answer was, well, when you add up not beating England, not beating Russia, and then deciding to fix the problem by declaring war in the strongest country of the world, you have to say uh, the phrase I remember for somebody discussing with his his uh, his decisions defy analysis. Uh, <laughs> that he was. Uh, uh, a total loon, uh, uh, but uh, you know, there's another. You know, sometimes you know that bit about like starting a war is like walking into a dark room. I said, well, you trip over things. Yeah, I wish that we knew what the German officer corps said when they first found out that Hitler had declared war on the United States. If they, that must have been a quite a devastating day for them. I'll bet most of them didn't understand how what a terrible mistake it was. Like when I say, uh, you know, you can look at at the resources of a country. I there's an interesting book. Uh, what was it? Strauss Huppe. Trying to remember the name of it, but it, it has a list of you know a bunch of uh, like here are the strength components of the major powers in 1940. It's yeah. things like how many young men do you have? Uh, how many? Uh, What's your oil production? What's your electrical production? What's your industrial production? Mm-hmm. Uh, now, as I said, there are modifiers. Like, you know, some countries that have less industry are really good at war, and that acts like a multiplier, but it can only go so far. At any rate, so he's, he comes up with estimates of what he calls the power potential for a bunch of countries in 1940. Right. But, and even then, there are more modifiers. Like, I said that the... Uh, uh, actually, you know, I think the United States steel production was a mere 40 million tons, which was, again, was considerably larger than anybody else's. I think Germany was 25. But but you know what it was, a, you know, like a year later? 60 million tons. The United States had all sorts of steel mills. This was in the Depression. We had all sorts. This is – we had factories lying idle. We had uh, uh, steel mills that weren't making any steel. You know, and steel workers were out of work. Uh, it was possible – to greatly improve production just by turning things on. Yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, the United States, and, and again, there were other things, like when Germany was conquering places, like there's some industrial potential in some of the places they conquered, like Belgium, like France, mm-hmm. uh, like the Netherlands. But there were two problems. One is it's almost as if the locals weren't really enthusiastically for Germany, they don't seem to have liked the Germans very much, and the Germans don't seem to be very, you know, their charm offensive seems to have failed. But the other thing was, you know, Germany was a country that was short on raw materials. 
And the countries that conquered early in the war were also short on raw materials. They were all countries that tended to import a lot of the ingredients for their industry, and they couldn't do it. Uh, particularly, um, I mean, after you got at war with Russia, there was just it was just impossible. You know, I mean, the British Navy is protect. You can't. I mean, there are places you can get such things in in peacetime, like you could buy oil from Venezuela. You could buy tin from Bolivia. You you know, there's a long list of things you can do, but so. Uh, a lot of the industry that Germany controlled, you couldn't get as much out of it as you would think because uh, unless they stuck to coal, which, you know, some things could do, they, you know, how do you get things to work in Belgium? They, they said, we need more resources. I said, well, but Germany does not have them. Well, yeah. Anyway. All right. Uh, okay. Uh so, I mean, this only leaves us with, you know, 500 other hours. If we, <laughs> yeah, we really, we could go on. Okay. 